There are certain terms that are very well known in our world today, terms such as the World Cup, which is a very strong competitive battle between various countries in the area of soccer, uh, Davis Cup, tennis, Super Bowl in the United States where you have football teams and competition. But I believe there's another area of competition that we need to be much aware of, and that is spiritual competition. And one term that has been used quite a bit recently and was uh, actually coined by the Australian missiologist Alan Tibbet back in the 1970s is a term entitled power encounter. And here we have much like a competition of two teams against each other, but this is a much more serious form of encounter. It is where you have a power encounter between religions. We have a power encounter between spiritual forces that maybe we can't see nor we cannot understand. And so I want to speak to us today about power encounter. And I entitled my chapter, The Power Shortage, because I see the world today as really a battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. It depends an awful lot on how you want to to look at Satanists or how you view power encounter. There are some people in the world today that say that there is no such thing as evil. Evil does not exist. Evil is nothing more than just the the absence of, of good, and that good will overcome all evil, and you have no worries. They say it's the same way as if there is no such color as white. White does not exist as a color, but black is a combination of all the colors put together. So there are people today that say there is no evil. Evil does not exist. There are other people that come along and say, well, there is a Satan, and a Satan exists as a, as a force and as a power but he is not a person, and you don't need to worry about him. Uh, in the Star Wars, uh, they always talked about the Force being the good power, and then they always had the, the evil power, and these two powers always would fight with each other. Then there are some people that come along and say, well, there is a Satan, but he is not a person as such, and you need not worry. But I believe very strongly that as you look into the Bible, you see that there is a, a Satan, he is a person, and he has a tremendous army working together with him. In fact, we find in the book of Ephesians where it says, We fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against rulers of the darkness. We see that there is this huge army that we are battling against. So I believe that there is good and evil. I believe that there is right, and I believe that there is wrong. And when we come into the area of, of a conflict between Islam on one side, Christian on the other, but I believe that you can call this power encounter because you have these two powers very much opposed to each other. There are some biblical examples of this. One of the biblical examples comes with the story of, of uh, Joseph uh, and, uh, excuse me, Moses and the Pharaoh in Exodus 5 to 12 as there was this power encounter Moses would go to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and the Pharaoh would say no, and there would be in instance after instance a power encounter as the power of God was shown to be superior to that power that the Pharaoh would be able to raise up until finally they were allowed to leave. Then we have the other one, and that is when Elijah uh, challenged the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. And at that particular time, you had all of the prophets of Baal that were on the mountain. And then you had Elijah that was there, and the, the battle was beginning to take place. 
who was going to be right. And you remember the story very well that uh, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, why don't you make up an offering, get it ready, and then pray that God will accept this offering with fire from heaven. And so the prophets of Baal got everything, they put it together, and they began to pray, and they prayed, and they prayed, and and Elijah kept mocking them and saying, now, uh, come on, you've got to do more than that, and then nothing ever happened. And then Elijah went ahead and got his offering, poured water on it until the water was all around, and, and then he prayed, and the offering was taken up in fire, and it was a power encounter which shows that the power that Elijah's God had was far greater than that which uh, the prophets of Baal had. It's been interesting for me to live in Europe. I, I've enjoyed Europe. I've enjoyed Europe, but sometimes you get into a uh, academic situation where people like to disprove the Bible. There was one book that came out oh, when I was over in Europe, and it was entitled "The Bible Hat Doch Recht." I think, in translated into English, is, is the Bible is really right. And there was a German theologian that came along, and he said, "Really and truly, the German is uh, the, the Bible is absolutely true." There are no mistakes in the Bible. And what he tried to do was he tried to explain away all of the miracles in the Bible. And he said there are reasons why this appeared to be a miracle, but in reality it was not a miracle. For instance, he said that when they, uh, Moses and the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, it really wasn't the Red Sea. It was only the Reed Sea. And the Reed Sea was not very deep at all. It was only had about eight inches of water in it and had these reeds growing up. So it was no miracle as such. And that when they crossed it, they crossed it in a very normal type of a way. I remember in one situation in a Sunday school in, in the United States where uh, the Sunday school teacher had read this book, and he was telling the children, he said, now children, when they crossed the, uh, the, the, the sea, it was not the Red Sea, but it was rather the Reed Sea, and there was only eight inches of water. And so one little boy in the class said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And the teacher was a little bit upset with him and says, young man, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to praise the Lord. It was only eight inches of water. Anybody could have done it. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. The teacher began to get a little bit aggravated and said, Now, young man, you, you just don't understand. It was not a miracle. Why are you praising the Lord? And he answered, Just think that the Lord drowned the whole Egyptian army in just eight inches of water. So when you begin getting into these situations, you run into some difficulties. I enjoyed the one where they was talking about the encounter of the prophets of Baal up there on, on Mount Carmel because the, uh, the author of this book said, isn't it wonderful what had happened? Because we now know that uh, Elijah had learned the secret of distillation. And that really what happened, instead of them pouring water upon the offering, they had distilled gasoline. And they had gasoline, and they poured the gasoline there. And all they did was throw a match into it, and the thing went up in the, into the air. I don't believe this. I believe that it was a power encounter. I believe it was a power encounter where the the man of God was encountering those that, that was being led by Satan, and this power encounter took place. Well, when you begin talking about Islam today, you have to realize that there have been numerous power encounters that have taken place. Ever since uh, Islam was founded in about 622, in the beginnings of Islam, there have been these encounters that have happened. Many times they have been physical encounters, they've been wars, they've been battles. But many times they've just been ideologies. 
But more and more, I think that we are in a point and a time where we have to realize that there is a spiritual battle that is taking place. And I do not believe that we can prepare ourselves for this spiritual battle until we are spiritually fit and spiritually ready to enter into this battle. Thus, I feel that that power encounter is a very important part of where we are. Let's let's think a little bit about power encounter. First of all, let's let's uh, look at maybe some present day encounters. Probably the most the best known form of power encounter is what we might call a dialogue. The more uh, ecumenical branch of Christianity has very strongly advocated this because they say, if we are going to get along with Islam, we have to have dialogue. And dialogue is basically where you have two parties, both having an equal right, coming together and sharing their position in the hopes that these two parties can come even with a a better position that would be superior to both of the other two. And consequently, in the last 30, 40, 50 years, as uh, Islam and Christianity were coming closer together in Europe and in the West, uh, there was a strong emphasis on dialogue. When I was in Europe working from about the 1970s to 1990, uh, working with, with Muslims in Europe, I went to a large number of these dialogue sessions. Uh, there would be various leaders of Islam, uh, the Islamic community of Germany and, and Europe, and various leaders from the Christian groups, and, and we would come together, and our whole discussion would be talking about uh, various uh, good things that we might be able to do together. Almost invariably, by these dialogues, at the beginning, they were civil, they were good, they, they had a good spirit. But invariably, as we started getting more into the differences and into different possibilities that we had of working together, the spirit began to become much more antagonistic until at the very end we almost always would leave with the understanding that we did not agree and that we would simply agree to disagree. And I never did feel that any of our dialogue sessions were very good. I did lead a conference one time of, of Baptists in, in Germany where we had probably three or 400 people that had come to this large conference. And one of the uh, people that was one of our speakers, and I did not know what this what was going to be, was the idea of Christian and Muslim dialogue. And when he got up and started speaking about Christian-Muslim dialogue, I had five people stand up and walk out. I went running after these five people, and I said, why are you running out? And they said, We are against the idea of dialogue. We feel as if dialogue is, to a degree, a waste of time. Dialogue never solves any of the problems, and we never get to the point where we need to of finding out what is really truth as such. I believe that this dialogue is an initial point of power encounter, but really it doesn't even begin to get into what I consider to be spiritual warfare or spiritual power encounter. It is simply a dialogue. The next one is debates. Now, probably in about the 1960s, 1970s, the Muslims began to see the positiveness of of debating. They said, our faith is better than the faith of the Christians. And so they seemed to be the ones that took the initiative of um, challenging Christians to debates. 
A leading proponent of this approach was a popular Muslim cleric, Ahmad Didat, from South Africa. This was a, a very capable man, and he learned much about Christianity. He knew the different schools of theology and was especially up on Christian leaders who, who questioned the validity of the Bible. And uh, he consequently would challenge uh, various Christian leaders to debates. Later on, some of our Christian leaders would challenge him to a debate, but he was the one that was on the, on the cutting edge of this movement of having debates. I've attended several of his debates, and one of them, I remember, was a debate against Jimmy Swaggart. Jimmy Swaggart, of course, the very well-known Christian evangelist who fell morally, and, and uh, Jimmy Swaggart was a person who felt like he knew everything, but when he got into an debate, a debate with uh, D-Dot, he it was very apparent that, that he was not up to the task. The fact is that if you want to get a copy of this debate on video, you can go to almost any Muslim bookstore in any mosque or anywhere that a Muslim bookstore, and you can buy this, this video. Why? Because it, it is a proof from the Muslim point of view that Islam is superior to Christianity. One of the things that Jimmy Swaggart would do, he would say, well, the Bible says, and the Bible says, and he would approach the debate much in the way that a evangelist would do it, but all Jimmy Swaggart said was, I mean, uh, all that Dedot said was, the Bible, the Bible, this bishop says the Bible's not true. And this theologian says that 90% of the, new, the gospel is myth. And this theologian says you can't believe that. And this theologian says that, that the Bible is full of errors. And poor Swaggart didn't know what to do on that. And Dedot had had prepared himself well for these debates. Uh, these debates are always very interesting, and I, and I think that there is a part of a, of a well-planned strategy. I went to one debate one time that uh, they had in England, and it was in the, uh, uh, a large uh, hall there that, that sat somewhere around 3,000 people. And I remember that as I went to that debate, I was amazed to see that of the 3,000 people, probably 2,000 of them were Muslims. It was advertised all throughout London, the great debate, uh, D-Dodd uh, against uh, uh, Arnold Sharosh. And uh, when I got there, I was very much impressed by the, 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 this feeling that you went in. Because when you went in, you had a feeling that, that something wasn't going to be quite right. It was kind of a spiritual feeling there. Well, we got into the debate, and I remember that as they were talking that the moderator of the debate was a, a Christian. I think they always allow the moderator to be a, a, a Christian for two reasons. One is because they are a little bit more mild-mannered, and, and two, because they feel like if it's a Christian, that that means that they're giving to the Christian something. And I remember as they got up, and, and the moderator got up, and he said, now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have this debate, and we've got two very fine people. We have a Christian leader, Anas Sharos, and he introduced him. And on the other side, we have this Christian, uh, this Muslim leader, and his name is Ahmad Didad, and introduced him. And he said, now, we're going to give this man a certain amount of time to speak, and this man a certain amount of time to speak, and uh, we want you all to be very polite and, and to listen and please, no applause, and let the men speak. And so Sharosh would get up, and he would begin to talk. And he would make a statement. And as the statement was made, there was, there was kind of a, 
a sound coming from the crowd. Oh, no! And he'd make it a no! And, and, and every time that Sharosh would say anything that was of a positive nature, you would have this no coming. And then when Didad spoke and he would say something, everybody would cheer, Yay! Yes! That's right! Yes! And Didad was a very sarcastic person, and, and he was a very clever person, too. And, and he would make sarcastic remarks about Sharosh and the things that he would say, and, and then they would clap. And the further that the debate came, the louder and louder the responses became, until it became very apparent that the crowd was on one side. And so what uh, the moderator would do is, ladies and gentlemen, please, let's, let's be quiet and let's let the speakers speak and, and let's don't have reactions and let's be kind and all these things. It didn't work. And so the crowd would, would say, we're going to prove and show that we are superior. The fact of the matter is, I told you about these, uh, this debate between Jimmy Swaggart and DDOT. If you ever get the video from one of these Muslim bookstores, and you can order it from www.islamicbookstore.com, uh, there's a word of caution on it. And the word of caution says this. A word of caution is in order. And don't forget, this comes from the publishers or the people that put out this video. A word of caution is in order, however. DDoT's militancy and no-holds-barred approach to Christian apologists Heartening to many a staunch Muslim also renders many of his videos too accurate to be shown to Christians. Those apologists of, of Muslims in Western countries would probably have a heart attack watching an Ahmadidad video. Nonetheless, there are many masterpieces among his videos, too. His debate with Jimmy Swaggart shows Didad at his best, most generous behavior, simply a gem of an item for Christians to view. In other words, what they, what they were saying is it's very apparent what they're doing. It's very apparent that the approach that they're taking. It's very apparent that the Muslims have already put into place a way to try to, to show the power of Islam to be able to claim we have won because of their actions, because of the, of the uh, very harsh way that they debate. And Christians many times simply are not ready for this. They had one debate with, uh, with Anna Sharosh, and, and I must admit, when I saw the debate with Anna Sharosh, I must say it was pretty well even. I don't think you could come away saying that the Sharosh won or, or that the Didad won. It, it, was, it was fairly even. But then Anna Sharosh also uh, debated that Didad one time in South Africa, and by the way, Didad uh, comes from South Africa. And I was not there, but a friend of mine told me that, that in this case, that the same situation was there. The majority of the people that were there in this power encounter were Muslims, and they were bound and determined to win and bound and determined to, to come out on the, on the positive side. And as Didad would speak, they would all applaud. As Sharosh would speak, they would boo. But the problem was Sharosh was winning, and it became very apparent that he was winning. And the more it became apparent that he was winning, the more unruly the crowd became until the time came that the crowd uh, rushed to the front of the uh, auditorium. The police had to get Sharosh, take him out the back door. One of Sharosh's aides was stabbed in the, in the melee that took place after that. And they were bound and determined to say, we're not going to let this man win. It was apparent that from the debate point of view, they were winning, but they weren't going to let them win. 
And so debates are, are being used all the time today as a, as a form of power encounter. And what begins to be a little bit tragic is that in many instances, we as, as Christians are not spiritually prepared for these. We just have a tendency to think it's a dialogue or a normal debate between two points of view without the realization that there is a spiritual background to this that we have to understand, that we have to be a part of, we have to think about. One of the things they do in England now, particularly in London and, and, and in other parts of England, I've never seen this done in America yet. It may be done, and, and someday I'd like to see if they do this. But one of the things that they do is they will uh, go to a church uh, many times on the outskirts of the Muslim area, and they will say to the pastor, Sir, we would like to have a debate with you in Hyde Park. And I say Hyde Park because the example that I'm well aware of took place in Hyde Park. So they came to the pastor of a church and said, we would like to have a debate with you. Bring some of your people, and we will bring some of our people, and we will have a public debate at Hyde Park, because Hyde Park is well known as a place where you can share share your beliefs. So what they did is they said, all right, and they all kind of got together, and the Christians said, all right, on 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, we're going to go to Hyde Park. So the pastor said, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go to Hyde Park, and the nice Muslim friends that are not too far away from us have invited us to a dialogue session. We're going to talk about our faith. Anybody that likes to come, come with us. And so there was about 30 or 40 Christians. They said, oh, fine, we'll go with you. So here came the pastor with his Bible and, and the 30 or 40 Christians, generally very well, nice dressed. They came to meet the Muslims there. When they got there, they found that there was about 400 Muslims. And they, they got there and, and they, they stood and they said, now... Now, the Christian pastor will, will stand here, and, and the Muslim will stand here, and we'll have a debate. And you can talk, and we'll talk. And so the Christian said, yes. So here were these about 30 or 40 Christians, and they were standing. And they began to notice, as they were there, that these 400 Muslims began to circle them. And the next thing they knew, they were kind of in the middle. And the next thing they knew in this debate as it was going on, they did the same thing they would do in, in one of these larger debates in an auditorium. As the Christian would speak, they'd say, no, 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 that's wrong, no. And then the Muslim would speak, yes, that's right. And it gets louder and louder and louder. And there's more and more intimidation until the the poor preacher doesn't know what to do. And the Christians don't know what to do. And so finally the preacher says, well, thank you very much. It's time for us to go home. And they all go home and the Christians all go home, kind of with their tail between their legs. And, And the Muslims say, we won again, power encounter. We proved that Islam is greater than Christianity is. And the problem becomes that, by and large, that, that we simply are not prepared for this, this, this spiritual power encounter that we have to have. I know of one man that went there to High Corner one time, and um, he, he was a very powerful Christian. He was spiritually prepared. And there was a time where he was going to debate uh, with another man that was a, a Muslim. Well, as they begin to debate, and, and you get into these power encounters, these spiritual power encounters, they, 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 don't, they don't follow the, the rules of, uh, of um, social etiquette very much because it begins to be a, 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 a power uh, encounter where, where there is force that is involved. And so what happened is the, the Muslim began to speak, and the, the Muslims would cheer, and the Christian would speak, and the Muslims would boo, and... The next thing that would happen, the Christian would speak. But this was a, a spirit-filled Christian. 
And he would come up and say, I'm telling you the truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is a Savior. He's a Master. And only through Christ can you be saved. Well, they would kind of boo, but, but they didn't know what to do. But they, they begin to realize once again that they were losing. And it just so happened that where they were standing, there were some trees, and they were standing kind of under these trees. And, and the, the, the encounter became very, very tense. It became so tense, and the Muslims were so upset and so unhappy because in reality, they were speaking to a man who, who had power, who had force behind him, that they didn't know what to do. And so when it was all over with, a friend of mine that was in the audience said, boy, you know, I, I didn't expect that. I, I thought we were just going to have a nice little talk with these Muslims. But, but man, this, 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 is, this is at another level that is hard for us to understand. And so he was talking to a Muslim, and he said to the Muslim, he said, now, he said, boy, I, I, I thought for a while that you all were going to attack our, our preacher. Uh, it looked like you were just ready to attack him. And the guy said, yeah, we were. Well, why didn't you? Well, we were afraid of those big men in the trees. He said, big men in the trees? I didn't see any big men in the trees. Didn't you see them? They were in the trees up above them. We were afraid of them, and we couldn't attack. My friend is thoroughly convinced that what it was was once you start getting into a power encounter, you begin having spiritual forces and spiritual powers that begin to help you, and they were probably angels, and I, I believe that. But what I'm saying is this, is that when you really begin to, to attack Islam or challenge Islam, you are going to be involved in a spiritual encounter. You are going to be on another level of of life that you have to be prepared for. Now, you don't go into these spiritual encounters without prayer, without fasting, without being prepared to deal with the enemy in the way that, that, that God has told us that we can do in the Bible. So I think that if, if we're very serious about challenging Islam and the growth of Islam in the world today, about the only way that we're going to be able to do that is for us to be spiritually mature, spiritually healthy, and able to go against them. Now, I do believe this, that more and more you're going to see spiritual strength in the lives of Christians that are willing to stand up to Islam. Now, there is a theology that is quite strong among uh, uh, evangelicals, and in fact, you watching this may be one of those that, that believes in this particular theology. Uh, I must admit, I don't. It, it's uh, a theology that basically says this. It says that such things as, as speaking in tongues, signs, wonders, miracles, and all of these things are of the past. That they were only uh, there for the early church as the early church was getting established and when the Bible, the canon, was developed. At that point then, all of these things passed away. And they say you can't really depend on, on wonders and signs and miracles and, and these things happening today. They, they simply do not happen. I think that Christians that have this particular philosophy ought to stay away from working with Muslims. And the reason why is because you are you're working in an area where, where you're going to be at a great disadvantage. Because if you can't believe and depend upon the Holy Spirit and God working in the lives of those Muslims that you're working with, and you don't believe there can be signs, wonders, and miracles, then, then, 
then, then you ought to really just stay out of this and go into another area of ministry. I believe in sign, I believe in sign wonders and miracles. And as I have talked to a large number of, of Muslims that have become converted, that have given their life to Christ, I ask them this question. Now, sir, let me ask you a question. How did you become a Christian? And invariably, they will give me a certain number of ways. They, sometimes they'll say, I listened to a radio broadcast, and I became a Christian through the radio broadcast. Sometimes they will mention a, the name of, a, of an individual that they met, that they spoke with. Sometimes they will come along and they will say, well, I, uh, I read the Bible and I became a Christian. And I would say, was there anything else in your life? And somewhat hesitancy, but always they would come along and say, yes, there was something else. I had a vision of Jesus Christ. Or I had a dream and, and Jesus appeared to me. Or I heard a voice and with this voice, God told me that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I believe that there is, with this power encounter, the divine intervention of God working in the lives of people and God changing people in extraordinary ways and in divine ways. We must, we must begin to look uh, at this as being a real possibility today. Uh, I could give you story after story after story of individuals that I personally know on how they became Christians. Recently I was at a conference and I was talking to a young man and he, he lived in North Africa and I can't give you his name. I can't give you the name of many of these people because their lives could be in danger. But he was telling me the story that, that he had come home one day from school. He was probably in his uh, late teens and his father said to him, son, we've got a problem in the family. Your sister has become a Christian and we must do away with her. And so the family met and they talked and they tried to talk this sister into leaving this new faith that she had and she refused. She said, I'm, I'm going to stay. And so the families decided that the one that had to kill her was going to be him. And he said, that was a job that you had to do. You had to kill your sister. And so he said he had appointed a certain night that he was going to do that uh, early in the evening. And he said he went to the kitchen. He got a large butcher knife. And he said his sister was sitting in there with her back. And he said he went up there and he, he, he was supposed to kill her. And he said, I just, I just can't. And so, so he went back and put the knife down. And he, he went to sleep that night. And he said, when I was asleep that night, he said, Jesus appeared to me and said, young man, she is of the right belief. You need to also give your life to Jesus Christ. I want you to. And that night he accepted the Lord. He never did kill his sister. The family got very upset with him. But he and his sister began to go to church and now they're Christians and, and they're together. But, but the fact that God appears. I knew one man who was a sheik from, from one of the North African countries and I talked with him and he was a Christian, uh, actually uh, a secret Christian. And the way that he said he became a Christian was that he went down to uh, he went down to the Hajj in in Mecca, and as you know in the Hajj there is a certain point where you go around the Kaaba seven times and you keep praying and everybody has on a white robe and you walk around the Kaaba and you pray. And he said he was walking around the Kaaba and he was praying, and as he was praying he heard a voice say, "Jesus Christ is Lord," and he stopped and he said, you know, what's that? And he looked around to see who had said that, and all he saw was a bunch of Muslims with these white robes on walking around, and, 
And he says, was it a man or was it a human? He didn't know. And he kept walking, got over to the other side, and he said, I heard the voice, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he said, it was either a Christian who was willing to sacrifice his life to be a witness in Mecca, or it was the voice of God. And you'd have a hard time convincing him that it was not the voice of God. God had spoken to him. So, when we come into the area of power encounter, I think we have to come and be spiritually prepared. There may be fasting, there may be definite times of prayer, but you are coming up against a force and against a power that's very difficult for us to fight just with the human abilities that we have. I remember one time being in in the country of Libya. I had gone there to, to Tripoli to try to do some work for the Mission Society. And when I got there, every time I get into a Muslim country, I feel this tremendous spiritual oppression. And the reason why you do is because I believe that there are spiritual powers that have forces and have have authority in certain geographical areas of the world. And I believe that there was this this, this, uh, spiritual force that was very, very active there in that particular country. And it was strange because I, I run every day, and so I put on my running stuff, and I was running, and, and, and I was kind of despondent. And I remember seeing a hotel. And the name of this hotel, strangely enough, was called the Hotel Majesty. And as I saw that hotel, I thought, you know, that song, Majesty, Majesty. And I started to sing it, and, and I began to be happy again. And I thought, isn't that strange? But, but th- there are times where you have to say, boy, there are spiritual forces against this power encounter. There is power encounter. And I feel that as we begin to see the, the conflict between Islam and Christianity, we better be prepared to seek the power of God. Some people have asked me, how do I witness the Christians? And I may mention this a little bit, I mean the Muslims, I mentioned this a little bit later on. But one of the things that I do is I pray and I say, God, Help this person to have a vision or a dream or hear a voice from you. And as I begin to pray this, I have seen it happening because God does move and works as we begin to pray and as we seek God's will. We had one very interesting story that that took place by one of our Southern Baptist missionaries, and it took place in the country of Kenya. And in my book, I describe it. I give the name of the missionary and uh, we as Southern Baptists are trying to work in all parts of the world. We have missionaries in, I think, about 140 countries of the world now. And, and so we sent this one missionary to Kenya, to Mombasa, to work with Muslims. Well, as we sent him down there to, to work with the Muslims, uh, he began to work in the most normal way that missionaries will work with Muslims, and that is that he uh, went down to the marketplace where the Muslims would all come. And, and he began to contact the Muslims, to work with them, to, to show interest in them, to help them, and do all of these things. And he did this for about nine months. And after nine months, he had a lot of success. The Muslims really appreciated it. He, he was a very friendly fellow, very charismatic type person, and uh, he was helping people in many ways. And, and the Muslims were very thankful. Well, it just so happened that most of those Muslims that he was working with also belonged to the largest mosque there in Mombasa. And so the imam from this mosque heard that this Christian missionary was having this success and, and having good contact. 
So the imam went to the missionary, talked with him, and invited him to come to his uh, meeting on Friday night. And so the imam said, please come and be our guest. And the missionary felt very good about that because here he had been invited to come. He said, okay, I'll come. So the missionary went to, um, to the, the mosque on that night. And when he got to the mosque, it was the largest mosque in Mombasa, totally filled, all of these men, no women. Again, you know women aren't allowed to go into the mosque. They're back behind a, a screen or, or they're in another part or they, they don't, simply do not come at all. But the place was totally filled with women. And he came in. And once he came in and sat down and began to, uh, to talk, um, the, the, the uh, imam was very nice to him. And there was a good conversation that was taking place. And then the imam turned to the congregation and said, Gentlemen, we have a Christian missionary with us. We're so glad to have him. He's a good man. And the people said, yes, good man. Yes, good man, good man. And he's our guest. Yes, he's our guest. Yes, he's our guest. And we're very happy to have him with us. Yes, we're happy to have him. Yes, yes. And, and uh, we, we want to show him hospitality. Yes, yes. Uh, sir, I'd like to ask you three very simple questions. Do you mind answering three simple questions? And the missionary was ready to answer them. He was taken a little bit by surprise because he didn't realize this is what was going to happen. And so the imam said, Sir, let me ask you three simple questions. He says, All right. First question, when you pray, do you pray in the name of Jesus? The missionary said, Yes, I pray in the name of Jesus. Good. Second question, when Jesus was here on earth, did he heal people? Yes, Jesus healed people. Question number three. Can Jesus heal people today? Mm, yes, I, I think that Jesus can heal people today. Thank you very much. Please come. And from the back of the mosque, a man came forward with his six-year-old daughter in his arms, and the daughter had been uh, lame from birth. And the uh, imam said, Sir, you said that you pray in the name of Jesus, and you said that Jesus healed when he was on earth, and that Jesus can heal today. Pray in the name of Jesus that this girl will be healed. Well, you've got to know Southern Baptists. We're not very strong in healing. That, that, that's not our forte, you might say. And, and this was not an area that, that he, he was trained. You know, he's not one of these divine healers. But what do you do? Here's a couple of thousand men looking to see what happens. And the man has kind of led him down this path. And here he is. And, and you've got to pray. So he said, well, let me pray. So he says, my father and my God, I, I pray for this young girl. And I pray for her. And, and I pray that you will heal her. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. And nothing happened. Let me pray a second time. Father, I, I pray for this girl. I pray in the name of Jesus that she'll be healed. And, and help her father to be healed. I pray that you'll heal her. I pray this in the name of Jesus, and nothing happened. Let me pray a third time. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that this girl will be healed, and nothing happened. When the third prayer was over with, the imam said, Ho, oh, ho, I understand. You just say that God hears these prayers that are given in the name of Jesus. Or well, we understand that Jesus can't really heal. We understand how this goes, and all the men says, yes, we understand, yes, yes, yes. Well, the missionary was embarrassed, to say the least. The imam was very proud of what he had done. 
The men in the audience were saying, yes, again, power encounter, and the Christians lose again. And so the imam told the man, go back, take her back. And so the man with the daughter went back to the back of the mosque carrying his daughter. When they got back to the back of the mosque, the daughter began to struggle in the arms of her father and fell off onto the floor and came running back to the front, healed. From this experience in that area of Mombasa to our work in the next six months, about 20,000 Muslims became Christians. You see, here was power encounter. Here, here was God working in this extraordinary way. And, and God was, was there. Now, sometimes when you come into power encounter, you can't really plan these things. But what it is, you have to be spiritually ready. You have to be spiritually prepared for these encounters. And I think that's what happened in this case. Well, once again, I could give you case after case after case. I know of one man that was a good friend of mine, and, and he was a, uh, a judge. And he was one of the top judges in this country, and he was a secret Christian. And I remember being with him on many, many occasions. And, and I said, how, how can you possibly be a Christian and be a judge, a top judge. And he was known in the Muslim world as being an authority on world religions. And he had a radio broadcast. And in this radio broadcast, he would talk about all these religions. And it just seemed that every time he talked about Christianity, he was very positive about that. And people would come along and say, now we think you're a Christian. No, 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 I'm just a, a, an authority on, 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 on world religions. And I would sit and talk with him time again and time again. He did tell me a fascinating story, and I, I believe that he was right. He said that back uh, during the time of Anwar Sadat in Egypt, that there was a man who was the second man in command of the El Azhar Theological Seminary, the top seminary of all of uh, the Muslim world in Cairo, Egypt. And I have visited this seminary. And he said the man that was the administrative head, he wasn't the theological head, but he was the administrative head of the seminary, had a daughter. And he said that this daughter uh, had some disease. It was a disease that would lead to death. And I don't know what it was. It may have been um, uh, cancer. I don't really know what it was. He didn't tell me. But he said this daughter had this disease. So what he did is he sent his daughter to England to have better medical care while he was in England. Well, the daughter fell into contact with some charismatic Christians, and these charismatic Christians began working with her, and they prayed for her. And basically what happened was the, the daughter was healed. And uh, when she was healed, she was very much afraid to call her father and to tell her father what had happened. So finally she got up enough nerve to, um, to call her father and gave him a telephone call and said, Father, I've, I've got something I need to tell you. And the father said to the daughter, Daughter, you don't need to tell me. I already know. And the daughter says, What is it? It says, You've been healed. And Jesus healed you. And the daughter said, How did you know? Did somebody call and tell you? No. I had a dream last night, and Jesus appeared to me, and, and he told me that he had healed you. So this man was a good friend of Anwar Sadat, so he went to Anwar Sadat and said, told him all the story and told him what happened, and says, What do you think I ought to do? And Anwar Sadat said, I have one piece of advice for you. Get out of this country as fast as you can. Take your family with you. 
go into hiding and don't let anybody know where you are because they will kill you. And he did. Well, this friend of mine who was a judge and a very high political figure was with me in Belgium. And he said, I've heard that this man and his family is in Belgium. I would like to see if I can find him. So when we were in Belgium, we went in various places seeing if we could find this man. And everywhere we would go, they would say, yes, we knew him. He was here, but he's dead. Yes, we knew him, but he's dead. He's dead. And my friend said, of course they're going to tell him he's dead because if they say that he's still alive, they will kill him. So he said, I understand that. And we never did find him. But again, my, what I have heard is that he has retained his Christianity. Now, there are three different forms of, of encounter between the two faiths. One is an encounter between religious structures. One of them is an encounter over theology. And another one is a spiritual and conversion encounter. Now, when you begin getting encounters between religious structures, that's at the high political end. That's when you have uh, people going from the United States trying to find a way of peace between Israel and, and Gaza. When you come into the second one where you have encounters over theology... This is primarily the, the encounters that you have with dialogue and, and where you begin to try to compare theological belief systems and try and show that there are differences and try to create understanding. But it's this third power encounter, spiritual and conversion encounters, where you must come along and begin to draw upon the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I believe that as we are faced with this encounter with Islam today, we have to strengthen our belief in power of the Holy Spirit. We have to once again come back to the place and the point to realize that Jesus Christ does work in the lives of people. I did have a close friend who I felt was probably one of the, the best missionaries to the, the Muslim world that I knew. His name was uh, Paul Smith, and Paul was an outstanding missionary. He, he was really one of the best men that we ever had. He went to Jordan as a missionary, and when he went to Jordan, he, he had a certain philosophy, and the philosophy was make friends with the leaders. So the next thing we knew, he had made a friend with the very top leader uh, of Jordan, the King of Jordan, and the King of Jordan became his friend. He, he and Paul Smith knew each other. And it came down to the point even where... Uh, uh, we had a Baptist school out in a little town called Ajloon in Jordan, and about four or five of the nephews and nieces of the king came to the Christian school because of this relationship with Paul. And Paul was very effective in being able to, to develop these relationships. He spoke, spoke fluent Arabic, and, uh, and he, he was really just a great missionary. Actually, in another part of this story, which was a little bit of a tragic story, is that Paul left... And later on, we got another missionary that came in to be the director of the school. And this missionary was not very adept at uh, understanding the culture that he was in, but he was the principal of this school where the nieces and the nephews of the king were in. So one day, they were having a parent-teacher's uh, dialogue, and, and the parents were coming to the school, and the principal was talking to the various students and to their, uh, their parents. And so during the middle of the talk, the secretary came in and said, uh, said uh, Sir, there's a man out here and he wants to talk to you. It's the king. The king wants to talk to you. Uh, he wants to talk to you. And so the principal said, well, he said, uh, 
I've got some other parents that are waiting in line too. You can tell the king to wait his turn, and as soon as I have time, I will talk with them. Well, the king left immediately. You don't let the king wait. And uh, all the nieces and nephews were pulled out of the school, and that was the end of that. Well, Paul also went to another country called Morocco. And uh, I went to visit him in Morocco, and he had just gotten to Morocco, and he was beginning his work. And he said, Bill, he says, I'm going to be doing some my, my mission work. Do you want to go with me? And I said, yeah, I'll go with you. And I was very curious to see how he did his mission work. So we went down. We went down close to the city hall, and uh, we went to a little cafe in the city hall, and we sat down, and I ordered tea, and he ordered coffee, and we sat there, and we drank coffee and tea for three hours, coffee and tea. And as we were there, this man would walk by, and he'd say, ah, ha, ha, whatever he would do, and the guy, ah, ha, 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 he'd say, chief of police. And we'd drink some more coffee. Another guy would come in, and hello, hello, assistant mayor. Hello, hello, mayor. He knew these guys. So his job for about two years was going down to this coffee house for three to four hours every morning and sitting there and drinking coffee. After a while, these people became his friends and he was able to work with them. But the reason I, I brought Paul up was, was because uh, there, there is one thing that you have to look at the other side. And I think that Paul was incorrect, but I've had to evaluate and to look at this very much. Because I believe that one of the best ways to witness, and I may talk about this later on, is, is to pray that the person, the target person, that you are having a discussion with will have a vision, a dream, or a voice from God. And I told Paul that one time. He said, no, that's totally wrong. I said, why? He said, well, because these people are mostly folk Islam. They, they, they are superstitious. And if you tell them they're going to have a dream, they'll probably have a dream. And the dream will not be from God, but it will be just from themselves. And you are leading them down a path with a false sense of having, uh, having God appear to them. And so I thought a lot about that, whether or not that is right or not. And I believe that I've come back to the point, though, where I say, no, no, I, I don't accept this. Because we have to accept the fact that God is involved in this power encounter between Christians and between Muslims. God is there. And as God is there, I believe that there will be much of the same phenomena much of the same workings of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these people that we find in the New Testament. And so as we get more intensely involved with Muslims today, we're going to have a much greater power encounter taking place, and we need to be ready for that. Now, another area that I want to go into is this whole area of intimidation. Muslims are very good at intimidation. They, they, have, uh, they have perfected this intimidation. And because we have been intimidated as Christians, many times we don't want to be involved in a power encounter. We shun this power encounter, possibly because we think that we're going to lose. And in many instances, we might. Uh, let's talk about terrorism and intimidation. When they have terrorism, this is really nothing more than a form of intimidation. Uh, one man who is uh, one of the clerics from El Azhar said, terrorism is a modern term. 
In Islam, the meaning of terrorism is intimidation. Not all intimidation is forbidden by religious law. In the modern age, when different kinds of oppression and persecution emerged, some ethnic groups in almost every society were stripped of their rights. When they insisted on their rights and when the despotic regimes rejected them, the oppressed and persecuted found no way to express themselves but by various means of of rebellion. Another uh, theologian, a man, Abd al-Sabur Shaheen, from the same university made a statement one time where he said, the truth is that the way that Islam uses the word terrorism is honorable. As Allah said, make ready for them whatever you can be of armed strength and of uh, mounted pickets at the frontier, whereby you may daunt the enemy of Allah and your enemy. The terrorism mentioned in this verse refers to intimidation or threat, not necessarily to damage. So what they're saying is it's all right to intimidate, but maybe not to do the actual damage, but to intimidate. And I have seen that there has been an increase of intimidation today. A New English uh, Dictionary defines intimidation the following way, to make afraid, to make timid, daunt, to force or deter with threats of violence, to cow, and to surrender, and to accept, really, uh, this form of intimidation. So they, they, they will intimidate. And I have many, many instances of, of people being intimidated. I remember one time I was in, in Germany, and uh, I was down in Austria, and a very well-known businessman who owned several factories and quite a wealthy man came down to Austria. And when I saw him down in Austria, he was pale white. And I said, what's wrong? He said, Bill, he says, I have received a, a letter from, um, from some uh, Muslim terrorists. And they have said that if I continue in doing what I am doing, they're going to burn my house down, they're going to destroy my factories, and I will lose everything I have. What should I do? And they requested $50,000 from the man. And uh, so the man went to the police and said, here it is, uh, what should I do? And the police said, pay the $50,000 because these terrorists have burned houses down. They have destroyed property. And if you don't pay, you're liable to have that all destroyed. And he didn't know what to do. He said, should I or should I not? And here we had very simple intimidation in, in its greatest form. So there, there is intimidation. And we know from 9-11 that they, they are, are capable of doing tremendous amount of harm and damage, but at the same time, it is intimidation, clear and simple. And we're going to be talking about intimidation in the next time, and also talking about intimidation together with persecution, because persecution is a, a really real fact of life. But we have to be very careful that we do not allow ourselves to be intimidated into quietness, into silence. We have to begin to realize that Jesus Christ is Lord and we must stand up for him under all set of circumstances. Thank you.